Good morning. I'm very grateful to Bob for filling in with his excellent three-part series from the book of Job while I was dealing with being sick and going through yet another uh, two-week self-isolation. All that's done. I feel great. Debbie feels great. Thank you for uh, the prayers that were raised up for us. Let's pray before we get started. Loving Father, your Spirit working through your Word gives us absolutely all that we need uh, for life and godliness through the true knowledge of our great God and Savior. I pray, Lord, that you would be with us uh, as we examine another timeless passage from the book of Jeremiah. And as we consider this humble and gentle man, Gedaliah, uh, that, that we would see things in him that point us back to Christ, who is our all in all. We ask that we might learn and heed what you would have us uh, to receive from you. We ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Since we've been away from our study of Jeremiah, the book of Jeremiah for a while, I want to I want to begin this morning by briefly providing some context so you'll know where we are in the history of Judah and in this great prophetic book. The year is 587 BC. All of God's warnings to Judah about the fierce judgment that would come because of their persistent rebellion against him and because of their idolatry have come true, exactly as many prophets over many generations had said that they would. The brutal 18-month siege of the great city Jerusalem by the armies of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, has now ended with the walls of the city destroyed and the great temple reduced to rubble. Zedekiah, the last of the kings of Judah in the line of David, had arrogantly refused to submit to King Nebuchadnezzar even though God had repeatedly commanded him to do so through his faithful prophet Jeremiah. Zedekiah and the Judahites in Jerusalem had convinced themselves that Yahweh would never allow Nebuchadnezzar to destroy the city of David or the temple of Yahweh. That even though Yahweh himself had explicitly said over and over that, that that's exactly what he would bring about. If Zedekiah and all of Judah did not accept Nebuchadnezzar as God's chosen instrument to correct his own people and to turn their hearts back to him. Zedekiah's long rebellion against Nebuchadnezzar and against God had ended very decisively. When Zedekiah tried at the last moment to flee from the, from the fallen city, he was immediately captured, and he was, he was brought to meet face-to-face -face with King Nebuchadnezzar, just as God had told him would happen through Jeremiah. Nebuchadnezzar executed Zedekiah's sons right before his eyes. And then he put both of his eyes out before carrying, carrying him away into captivity to Babylon. Jeremiah, who had been repeatedly imprisoned 
and persecuted by the kings and officials of his own people, is now free to go wherever he pleases. As chapter 40 opens, the captain of Nebuchadnezzar's elite personal guard, Nebuzaradan, gives Jeremiah complete freedom to go wherever he wants to go. Nebuzaradan offers to personally see to Jeremiah's well-being in Babylon if Jeremiah will return with him there. But Jeremiah's heart is with the few Judahites that still remain in the land. The, the riffraff of the riffraff, as Nebuchadnezzar saw them. People who weren't worth carrying into exile. Chapter 40, verse 10 refers to them as, quote, the poorest of the land who had not been exiled to Babylon. But who would govern the Judahites now that their king had been taken away? Well, <laughs> Nebuchadnezzar apparently had come to the conclusion uh, that, that he was done with appointing Judahites from the kingly line of David to serve as kings over Judah. In fact, he was done with any notion of anybody serving as king uh, with that title over the Judahites. Instead, he appointed a humble and godly man named Gedaliah to govern the tiny remnant of Judahites that still remained in the region of Jerusalem. Now, I want to make sure that we know who this man Gedaliah is and what, uh, how his story has already developed in the scriptures. His lineage is very important to understanding his heart before God and before men and to understanding the lessons in this passage. The passage repeatedly refers to him as Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan. So his father is Ahikam, his grandfather is Shaphan. Gedaliah's grandfather, Shaphan, was a priestly scribe in the days of the last godly king of Judah, King Josiah. Second Chronicles chapter 34 narrates the story involving Shaphan. And it's a marvelous story. King Josiah had ordered that the long-neglected temple of Yahweh in Jerusalem would be repaired and cleaned up and restored to use. In the process of that, of that refresh of the temple, a priest named Hilkiah rediscovered the book of the law that Moses had written. And that book had appeared, that those scrolls had apparently been covered with junk in the temple for decades. Hilkiah handed that book of the law to a, a faithful scribe named Shaphan to present to the king. Shaphan then took that rediscovered word of the living God and he read it to King Josiah. And the king tore his robes and he cried out in heartfelt repentance on behalf of all of the people of Judah. And, he, and, and that that repentance of, of Josiah, that response, that right response to the Word of God, ushered in one of the greatest spiritual revivals in the history of God's people. That scribe, Shaphan, was Gedaliah's grandfather. And we met Gedaliah's father back in chapter 26 of Jeremiah. His name was Ahikam, son of Shaphan. 
Ahikam is the faithful scribe who protected Jeremiah from King Jehoiakim when that evil king had set out to assassinate the prophets of Yahweh for not saying what he wanted to hear. Jehoiakim had just executed one godly prophet named Uriah, and he had sent his soldiers to track down Jeremiah so he could do away with him as well. But Ahikam gave Jeremiah refuge. He hid him from the king, certainly risking his own life in order to do so. So Gedaliah's grandfather is Shaphan, Gedaliah's father is Ahikam, and we meet Gedaliah's, we met Gedaliah's uncle in chapter 36. His name was Gemariah, son of Shaphan, brother of Ahikam. God had instructed Jeremiah in that chapter to write on a scroll all that God had declared to Judah through all of the prophets from the time of King Josiah to the time of King Jehoiakim, including many prophecies of the soon destruction of the city and of the exile of, of Judah to Babylon. Jeremiah dictated all of those words of God to a scribe named Baruch, who wrote them on what had to be a very long scroll. Then Baruch took that rolled-up scroll to the scribes who lived at the temple in Jerusalem and worked and who, who worked at the king's house because the scribes in that day did they did clerical type work as well as work involving the word of God, but their delight was in the word of God. God's intention was that the scroll would be read in the hearing of the people and of their wicked king, so that perhaps Jehoiakim and all Judah might repent and be spared the destruction that God foretold. When the scribes, including Gemariah, heard the words of God, they told Jeremiah and Baruch to hide themselves because they knew that King Jehoiakim would seek their death as soon as he heard the words that were written on that scroll. A few verses later in that same chapter, 36, as the scroll was being read to King Jehoiakim, that wicked king tore off each section of the scroll after it had been read and he threw it into the fire that was burning in his personal space heater, a brazier that was at his feet. As the king began to burn the scroll containing the words of the living God, two scribes pleaded with the king not to burn that scroll. One of those scribes who again risked his life to stand for Yahweh was Gemariah, the son of Shaphan, the uncle of Gedaliah. I hope you're seeing a pattern here. Unlike every ruler over Judah since King David, Gedaliah was not from the kingly line of David. He was from a long line of priestly scribes, men who were devoted to the preservation and propagation of God's word, men whose lives had been revitalized when the word of God was discovered at the temple during the reign of Josiah. Nebuchadnezzar rightly surmised that this man, Gedaliah, would not 
try to stir up the people to rebellion yet again. But he would recognize that God's own word to Judah had consistently been that they must submit to Nebuchadnezzar as God's instrument of corrective judgment against them. Gedaliah knew and believed the word of the one true God. Let me say that again. Gedaliah knew and believed the word of the one true God. His forefathers had put their lives on the line to ensure that that sacred word was ever before God's people and God's kings. And that the people knew what the, Judah's kings, and, and that the people knew what that word required of them. Now that's the man into whose hands Nebuchadnezzar now entrusted the task of governing the small remnant of Judahites in the land of promise. So how did Gedaliah handle that, that very important and sacred assignment? The answer that we find here is that he handled it faithfully to the point of death. And that death came quickly. For a brief time, things seemed to be going very well under Gedaliah's governance. During the, the long Babylonian invasion of Judah, many Judahites had fled to neighboring nations like Moab and Ammon. And some of the military leaders of Judah's armies had been stationed in the countryside, in the field, rather than in the cities against which Nebuchadnezzar had focused his energies. These few military leaders and the soldiers under their command soon heard of the fall of the city and of the king, and they heard of Nebuchadnezzar's appointment of Gedaliah the scribe to govern the survivors in Judah. And since the great city had been laid waste, Gedaliah gathered the people not to Jerusalem, but to Mizpah, a village roughly 12 miles north of Jerusalem. The, the, so the military leaders that had been out in the countryside and some of the people who had gone to, they had fled to other nations, came back now and they gathered themselves to Mizpah under Gedaliah's govern, uh, governance. In verses 9 and 10 of chapter 40, Gedaliah instructs this remnant of Judahites on Nebuchadnezzar's behalf and more importantly, on God's behalf. And here's what he tells them. Verse 9, Then Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, swore to them and to their men, saying, Do not be afraid of serving the Chaldeans. That's the Babylonians. Stay in the land, stay in the land, and serve the king of Babylon, that it may go well with you. Now as for me, behold, I'm going to stay at Mizpah, to stand for you before the Chaldeans who come to us. But as for you, gather in wine and summer fruit and oil and put them in your storage vessels and live in your cities that you have taken over. <laughs> He's saying, go and settle back in the land and, and be fruitful. Enjoy the blessings of God. Now, we must not miss what Gedaliah says about wine and summer fruit. Throughout the Old and New Testaments, the absence of wine and fruit 
and olive oil is a sign of judgment from the hand of God. And an abundance of wine and fruit and oil is a sign of restoration, of renewal and blessing from the hand of God. I could go to countless passages to drive home this point, starting all the way back in Genesis. But if you'll look closely at just two chapters, Isaiah chapter 24 and 25, you can't miss this, this point, this powerful theme of the absence of wine representing judgment, the abundance of wine and, and oil representing restoration, deliverance, redemption at the, by the hand of God. All right, so here in Jeremiah 40, when Gedaliah tells the Judahites to gather in and to fill their vessels with wine and summer fruit and olive oil, he's telling them to bask in the blessings that they are about to receive from God because they are trusting God's word and walking in God's ways. Gedaliah is saying to the nation, this is a time for building up and planting, not for tearing down and destroying. All the Judahites had to do in order to stay in the land of promise under the protection and blessing of God was to stay where they were and to submit to Nebuchadnezzar's rule through the newly appointed governor, Gedaliah, who was a godly man. Just a couple of verses later, we see that God is keeping this gracious promise through Gedaliah. Verse 12 says, Then all the Jews returned from all the places to which they had been driven away, and they came to the land of Judah to Gedaliah at Mizpah, and they gathered in wine and summer fruit in great abundance. Things were going just as Gedaliah said they would. If the people submitted if they listened to God, if they trusted God's word. But the obedience of the people, and thus the blessing of God on this remnant of Judahites, were both painfully short-lived. The enemy against which Judah should have been vigilant wasn't Nebuchadnezzar or any other earthly enemy. It was the enemy within their own ranks, in their own hearts. Just as in the days of Josiah, God had given Judah a leader in this man, Gedaliah, that they didn't deserve. And that fact very quickly became apparent. At the end of chapter 40, a man named Johanan, one of the military commanders who had come back to Mizpah, to, to live under Gedaliah's rule. Now comes to Gedaliah and he tells him of a plot by one of his fellow military leaders, Ishmael, a plot to take Gedaliah's life. He tells Gedaliah that Ishmael has been commissioned by the king of the, of the neighboring pagan nation of Ammon to kill Gedaliah and to bring the people of Judah into Ammon, no doubt to serve as slaves to the Ammonites. Johanan comes to Gedaliah in private, and he offers to murder Ishmael before he can kill Gedaliah. But, but Gedaliah can't bring himself to believe such a terrible thing about Ishmael, a fellow Israelite, 
He accuses Johanan of spreading a lie about Ishmael. Now, he doesn't say, get a liar, you're a liar. He says, the thing that you are speaking is a lie. In other words, you've bought into a lie, uh, Johanan. But get a lie was wrong about Ishmael. And he was wrong when he said that Johanan was not speaking the truth. As chapter 41 opens, the treacherous, treacherous Ishmael gathers, uh, sorry, he carries out the plot against Gedaliah just as Johanan had, had warned. Ishmael comes with 10 men, and while he's sitting down, while they're all sitting down at a meal to, together with Gedaliah, Ishmael assassinates the governor. Chapter 41, verse 2 says that Ishmael struck down Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, with the sword. He put to death the one whom the king of Babylon had appointed over the land. But Ishmael didn't stop there. He executed all of the officials who had gathered to Gedaliah at Mizpah, as well as the Chaldean soldiers that Nebuchadnezzar had placed in their midst. Then on the next day, when 80 men came from Shechem, from Shiloh, and from Samaria to bring offerings into what was left of the temple of Yahweh, Ishmael lured those 80 men into Mizpah, and then he slaughtered them. And he cast the bodies of all those that he had slain into a cistern that the evil king Asa had dug many years before. Verse 10 says, Ishmael took captive then all of the remnant of the people who were in Mizpah, the king's daughters, and all the people who were left in Mizpah, whom Nebuzaradan, the captain of the bodyguard, had put under the charge of Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam. Thus Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, took them all captive and proceeded to cross over to the sons of Ammon. Ishmael was on the verge of succeeding in his treacherous mission. But Johanan rounded up what was left of the, of the soldiers of Judah, and he went after Ishmael. And when they caught up with Ishmael, the people were glad, and they immediately turned back to Johanan. Ishmael escaped with only eight men and proceeded to go off uh, go back to Ammon. Now, I suspect that uh, Ishmael didn't fare very well in Ammon, having failed at the mission given to him by the king of Ammon, a nation that was, uh, was not known for being very kind to Israelites and Judahites. At the very end of chapter 41, we see that Johanan brought the rescued Judahites back, not to Mizpah, but to a place near Bethlehem in order to proceed to Egypt. And it's very important. In order to proceed to Egypt. Why was this remnant of Judahites heading to Egypt instead of remaining in Judah as Gedaliah had instructed them? Verse 18 gives us the answer. Chapter 41, verse 18. It says, Because of the Chaldeans... That's why, that's why they were headed to Egypt, for they were afraid of them. They were afraid of Nebuchadnezzar. 
since Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, had struck down Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, whom the king of Babylon had appointed over the land. <laughs> Johanan and all the Judahites were scared to death that Nebuchadnezzar was going to come down and take them into captivity or just wipe them out because this guy Ishmael had killed the man that Nebuchadnezzar had appointed to govern the land. Even after all that had transpired, this small remnant of Judahites that God had commanded to stay in the land in submission to Nebuchadnezzar was still more afraid of Nebuchadnezzar than they were of the God who had raised up Nebuchadnezzar to judge them and to bless them. And as we'll see next time, their fear of men had brought them right back to the same shameless rejection of God's word that had just resulted in the destruction of the city and the temple in the first place. They had learned nothing. Now I want to take some time to try to assess Gedaliah's words and actions from a biblical perspective so that we can learn what we need to learn from this man. Many godly students of the Bible have concluded that Gedaliah was a fool for not listening to Johanan's accurate assessment of Ishmael's intentions and for not taking measures to protect himself against Ishmael's murderous plot when he had been very clearly warned. Some have even said that Gedaliah could have and should have prevented the calamity that befell the Judahites by letting uh, Johanan kill Ishmael. In short, some see Gedaliah as a really bad example of godly leadership. Now, you don't have to agree with me in my conclusions here. Since you're not presently sitting in our church auditorium, you can just hit the stop button on this video if you want to. But I hope you'll hear me out because I believe there are very important lessons for us here. And I believe we have to look at the, the whole counsel of Scripture to really understand what's going on with this man, Gedaliah. And I believe that the lessons for us here could not possibly be more timely or relevant to the church than they are right now. I'm convinced that Gedaliah is presented in this passage as a hero of the faith not as a naive fool who ruined Judah's opportunity to receive blessing from God. As for Gedaliah's accusation that Johanan was bearing false witness against Ishmael, Gedaliah was wrong about the truthfulness of Johanan's words, but his assessment of Johanan's heart was spot on. As we'll see in living color next week, Johanan turned out to be no friend of Gedaliah, of Judah, or of God. Instead, he proved to be as staunch an enemy of the will and the ways of God as Ishmael was. And Johanan presided over far greater damage to the Judahites' relationship with God than Ishmael had managed to bring about. What did Gedaliah do wrong and what did he do right? Well, I submit to you that 
the very things that so many readily criticize about Gedaliah actually show him to be a servant leader after God's own heart. A servant leader who has very much to teach you and me about what it means to live in a way that blesses the people of God and advances the kingdom of God. I believe with all my heart that Gedaliah was a servant leader who wonderfully foreshadowed and honored the great shepherd of the sheep of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to go back some and look at a couple of other people. David was a teenage boy, a shepherd, when God anointed him to be king over his own people through the prophet Samuel in 1 Samuel chapter 16. Not very long after being anointed as God's chosen king, David then spent the rest of his teenage years and many of his young adult years fleeing with a small band of valiant friends from the murderous intentions of King Saul. During the many years that Saul sought to track down and kill the young David, there were two moments when David had a perfect opportunity to kill Saul and to end the hardship that Saul's hatred of him had brought into his life. The first episode was in 1 Samuel 24, when David and his men hid themselves in a cave while 3,000 of Saul's soldiers combed the countryside looking for them. Much to their surprise, Saul himself came alone into that cave to, quote, cover his feet. Uh, our modern euphemism would be to go to the restroom. <laughs> the second easy opportunity for David to kill King Saul, who was so bent on killing him, was when Saul's entire army had fallen asleep in a valley and David and his best warriors walked right through their camp undetected. Both times, David's most trusted men very strongly exhorted David to kill King Saul. But both times, David steadfastly refused. In 1 Samuel 24, David said to his men, Far be it from me that I should do this thing to my Lord Yahweh's anointed to stretch out my hand against him since he is Yahweh's anointed. Now note that this was after God had declared to Saul that his kingdom would soon end because of his unfaithfulness and that one whom God anointed was going to replace him. And that would be David. In 1 Samuel chapter 26, the incident in the valley, Abishai, one of David's most most faithful and valiant warriors, pleaded with David to let him kill Saul so David could stop running for his life and could finally be king just as God had declared he was supposed to be through the prophet Samuel. But again, David steadfastly refused to lift his hand to kill or even harm Saul. He said, who can stretch out his hand against Yahweh's anointed and be without guilt? That's 1 Samuel 26.9. In both of those episodes, David's own 
faithful warriors considered him foolish for not taking advantage of the opportunity to slay the one who was seeking his life and to lay hold of the throne that God had already declared to be rightly his. But David would not do it. Did that make David a naive fool whose naivete put God's agenda at risk? Or was it instead a powerful demonstration of how a man speaks and acts when his fear and his trust are not in men, but are in God? The truth is clearly the latter in David's case. Now let's bring all this back to the narrative in Jeremiah concerning Gedaliah. Ishmael, and Johanan. Johanan is to Gedaliah as Abishai was to David. Johanan forcefully counseled Gedaliah to take matters into his own hands, to protect himself, and to secure the promised blessings of God upon his people. And Ishmael is to Gedaliah as Saul was to David. Jeremiah 41 verse 1 says Ishmael was of the royal line, literally of the royal seed. He was of the line of King David. That same verse says he was one of the chief officers of the king. Ishmael was a close relative of King Zedekiah. He was descended from King David. And what is crystal clear here is that Ishmael viewed himself as deserving the throne of Judah now that Zedekiah was out of the picture. And Ishmael held nothing back to lay hold of that position. But Ishmael was the opposite of David and of Gedaliah in every respect. Like Saul, Ishmael had no hesitation at all in lifting up his hand against God's anointed Gedaliah was appointed by God through King Nebuchadnezzar to govern what was left of the Judahites, but Ishmael slew him as if he was doing God a favor. Friends, I believe that the lessons here are timeless. And in our present historical context, <laughs> I believe they are exceedingly relevant. I'm pretty sure that most unbelievers and more than a few Christians would say that Gedaliah's life is a great lesson on what not to do. It's a lesson on how a lack of vigilance will put an end to your usefulness to God and perhaps to your life. Think about it for a moment. <laughs> Here's a short course on how to shorten your earthly life and end your opportunity to accomplish anything further on earth in three easy steps. First, tell people to do exactly what God says. Second, expect the best from people who are supposed to be on your side. And third, refuse to protect or vindicate yourself in any way. That's a short course, three steps on how to shorten your earthly life and end your opportunity to accomplish anything further here on earth. But for us who are the children of the Most High God, 
of the one who alone controls all blessing and curse, all good and all calamity, if any of those three things strikes us as foolish, then we're looking with the wrong eyes. We're looking with the world's eyes. Gedaliah was very much like Jeremiah and all of the faithful prophets who came before him when it came to passing along to the people what God had to say to them and what God required of them without making any adjustments to that word from God. Gedaliah didn't dress it up. He didn't worry about making it easier to swallow. He didn't add anything of himself to it. He just said what God said, and it got him killed. So did Jesus. What about the second of those three things? What about naively expecting good things of people who are supposed to be on your side, who are supposed to be on God's side? Is that something that God wants us to carefully and diligently guard against so that we don't put his agenda or our usefulness to God in peril? No, it's not. 1 Corinthians 13 says, Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. What happens to your temporary well-being, even to your physical life, what happens to your financial situation, your emotional workload, <laughs> when you expect good things from other sinners, including redeemed sinners, when you believe all things of them? Because that's what God says godly love does. When you steadfastly look for the new man, Christ, in your brothers and sisters, instead of keeping a really, really close ever skeptical eye on the old man that you know still holds sway on them just as that old man still holds sway on you. When you do that, when you look for Christ in other people and you don't spend much time looking at that old man, when you believe all things you set yourself up to be taken advantage of and ripped off and used up. Wouldn't it be so much better to become an expert on every brother's pattern of sin and areas of untrustworthiness so you could fortify yourself against all that hurt and loss? No, it wouldn't. That wouldn't be better. In Romans 16, 19, Paul says to every believer, I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. And the word innocent that's used there includes a strong element of naivete. Paul is saying, I want you to be so pure, so set apart from the evil things and evil ways of this world that you don't even know how they work. Is that how most Christians operate? Is that how you operate? Is that how you operate in your marriage? Is that how you operate in your dealings with your fellow believers? 
Is it how you operate in your dealings with powerful people in this world? Beloved, a man who trusts in God with all his heart sees very little value or point in expending energy and mind work to guard against the evil intentions of mere men. If, as Proverbs 21.1 says, the heart of a king is like channels of water in the hands of Yahweh, why would I devote my energies to protecting myself from power, what powerful men might do to me? Why is it that every election cycle in this country, so many Christians act and speak as if their well-being and the well-being of everyone and everything that they love is somehow tied to who gets elected and who gets appointed by those who get elected. Our tendency is to say, <laughs> Gedaliah should have watched out for himself way better than he did. And by not doing so, he put all his fellow Judahites in great peril. But that, my friends, is wrong. That's too much man and too little God. And that's not original with me. I think it was Felicity Lopez who shared that a long time ago with Bob. <laughs> that's too much man and too little God. Did Jesus put God's agenda in peril? Let me start that again. Did Jesus put God's agenda in peril by not calling down 12 legions of angels when he was arrested by the Romans? Sorry, arrested by the Jews and then handed over to the Romans. That's what he said he could have done. <laughs> he could have called down 72,000 angels to defend him, to wipe out those who opposed him. Did he put God's agenda in peril by not doing that? Not for a second. The notion that protecting our physical lives from mortal men and earthly threats somehow plays an important part in us being useful to God to advance his kingdom on earth is just plain unbiblical. You might be thinking, yeah, but David hid from Saul. And the Apostle Paul had himself lowered in a basket to escape people who were seeking his life. <laughs> but the same David took a pass on the two greatest opportunities that he had to end the severe hardship that Saul had created for him because of Saul's sin. And the same Paul, after being told by the Holy Spirit that he would be persecuted by the very people who should have been on his side, and that he would be put in chains when he went to Jerusalem, went anyway. Vigilance in this life for the believer is not about protecting our physical bodies or our earthly well-being from earthly and temporary threats. Godly vigilance is about guarding our fear of and trust in and submission to the living God who alone is sovereign over everything in his creation. What we need to be vigilant about is doing life on God's terms, not about protecting ourselves from those who don't.
David and Paul are great examples of men who had a lot in common with Gedaliah. But where this really comes home, beloved, is when we turn our eyes to the one who is to be our example in all things. To the preeminent servant of God who was faithful, humble, gentle, and betrayed by his own people. And that servant is Jesus. Isaiah 53 verse 7 says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. Instead, he became the perfect guilt offering for our sin so that we could be reconciled to God. What are we supposed to do, you and me, to protect ourselves against those who would persecute us or defame us or kill us for following Christ's example? Aren't we supposed to care about the intentions of evil people toward us? Are we just supposed to do nothing to protect ourselves against them? Here's Peter's answer to that question. 1 Peter 2 Starting at verse 20, what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. And listen to this. For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. That's also from Isaiah 53. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but he kept entrusting himself to him who judges justly. God's prescription for our protection isn't for us to protect ourselves. It's for us to trust him. What did Jesus get when he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly? Did he get to escape suffering at the hands of evil men? No. The next two verses of 1 Peter chapter 2 say, And he, Jesus, he himself bore our sins on his, in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. God's promise to us is not that if we abandon our efforts to protect ourselves from others and trust in him alone, that he, God, won't let people, evil people, touch us. His promise is that he will not let them change one single thing about his agenda to glorify himself and to bless his own people. 
through suffering. Gedaliah did not die frivolously. He died usefully. He died faithfully. God is still teaching and refining his beloved children through Gedaliah today, right now, more than 2,500 years later. May he do such a powerful work through you and me as we follow that humble man's righteous example. Dear Father, make us like Gedaliah to the extent that Gedaliah matched up with, with the greatest servant of all, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We ask this for his sake, for his glory, and in his name. Amen.